Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. This week, we're going to bond boot camp with Justin Land. Investing in bonds provides two main things. It's stability. So to offset the fluctuations, what I'll call of risk assets, stocks or hedge funds or commodities or all these other things you can invest in. So it's your anchor. It's your sleep well at night money is what bonds are for. And secondly, they provide predictable cash flow. And that's why retirees like bonds so much. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, this week we're going to camp. We're going to bond boot camp. Uh-huh. I decided that it was time to kind of dive into this topic. We get so many questions about bonds, how they work, what they do, misconceptions. So I had to go find a really smart person to do this. So who did I get? Justin Land. He is a bond specialist, director of tax-exempt bond management at Wasmer Schroeder & Company. He's out of Naples, Florida. And he's a very smart dude, okay? So let me just say he's got a great resume, but more importantly, he talks about bonds passionately. And anyone who can talk about bonds passionately is my kind of guy. I look forward to hearing some of your questions that I know will arise from this episode. But get ready. Bond Boot Camp starts right now. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Justin Land, you are here as a very important guest. You are going to help conduct Bond Boot Camp for our listeners. Absolutely. Are you ready for it? I'm, I'm ready. Let me start the interview by asking this question. What is the best financial money or career decision that you've made in your life? That's a good question. The best financial decision I've ever made was to pre-purchase my kids' college education in the state of Florida. Oh. So they have a plan where at birth you can pay for their education at today's rates, and it guarantees regardless of the cost in the future uh, what they will get. So with the the rising rates of uh, college tuition, I think I'm going to annualize something like 12 or 13%. That's amazing. Wow. And do you have to attend Florida schools? You have to attend a Florida public school. Okay. That seems reasonable. And and there are plenty, and there are great schools there. Uh, Did you attend a Florida public school? I did. I went to Florida State. All right. Wait a second. Which one is that? Is that the Gator or the- That's the Seminole. The Seminole. Okay. All right. I'm going to- I can see you got a little insulted by that. No, (laughs) no. Although my father is a Gator, so- All right. You know- So we have brought you on the program because you are the director of tax-exempt management at Wasmer Schroeder & Company. But really, you are a bond genius. And I'm always struck by how many times people will send us emails. They don't really get bonds. And even though they sort of say, oh, they're safe, I was hoping that you could help us through a little bond boot camp, first by explaining in a simple way, what is a bond? A bond is a debt obligation. It's just a loan that you can buy and sell like a stock. So it's like an IOU. It has a term usually, correct, right? Correct. Uh, and it is a there's a promise of a certain amount of interest paid, usually a couple times a year, yes. right? Or sometimes not at all. And we'll get to that in a second. And what I think is confusing to people is this idea of well, what is the coupon? the stated interest rate on that bond versus 
What's the actual yield you're getting? Can you explain that a little bit? That is the thing that hangs people up the most. So as you mentioned, uh, most every bond has a maturity. And this is unlike virtually every other investment in that you know when you're going to get your money back. You don't know what the price of Google will be in 10 years, but I can tell you to the day when you will get your money back on a bond. And in the meantime, you earn interest. And this is where the, the confusing part comes. So there's a calculation called yield, which is effectively just the rate of return if you hold the bond to maturity. If there's one thing today people need to remember, it's that when the price of a bond goes up, the yield goes down. And if the yield goes up, the price goes down. And all that means is if I'm going to pay you $10 a year for 10 years, if you pay a dollar for that stream of cash flow, your rate of return is huge. If you pay $90 for that stream of cash flow, it's not great. What I see out there a lot of times is people being told about the cash flow on their bond and less about the yield on their bond. And in this rate environment where interest rates are so low, there are many bonds selling at very large premiums. So the coupon may be 5%, but your rate of return might only be one and a half or 2%. So I think that, let's stop for a second because I think you're exactly right that someone says, oh, I just got this bond that uh, it's yielding 8%. And I and I always sort of you know creak my head and say that must be one risky bond if you're going to get eight percent. Yep. And so, with more with more potential return is more risk. So you have a very riskless investment like a one week T bill and you get paid almost nothing on it. And then there are a few bonds out there yielding eight or ten percent, but that in my mind means the market is not confident that they will pay you back. So all the bond math works only if you get paid. And right, if you don't get your money back, if the company goes broke, if the municipality declares bankruptcy, if Puerto Rico can't pay back $74 billion worth of bonds, then you can, whatever they that stated rate was, who cares, right? Correct. Okay. Now, let's go back a little bit because you said that bond prices can fluctuate. And I think that a lot of people don't quite get why that is. In other words, I thought I was going to get my money back. I thought I had the stated interest. So can you just describe why would the price of a bond fluctuate? Sure. So that yield that's quoted assumes you're holding that bond to maturity. And at any other time, if you decide to sell before that, the rate of return can be higher or lower. And so that's a great question. Why do interest rates go up and down? There's short-term factors. When President Trump was elected, there was a belief that uh, he would reinvigorate the economy. We'd have a lot of growth. That would cause a lot more inflation. And so we saw interest rates go up in expectation that inflation would rise. Inflation is kind of the killer of a bond. Right, because you have the stated amount of money you're receiving every year. And if inflation's rising, it's eating into that stated amount. Correct. Okay. So over long periods of time, interest rates move based on expected inflation. What we've seen since the financial crisis is very, very low inflation. Consequently, we've had very low interest rates for 10 years, despite virtually everyone out there saying interest rates are going to go up. They really haven't. Well, what do you make of that? You're a person who has to invest in bonds. Do you think that there is something 
that has really changed in the economy around why inflation remains so low? It's a complex question. Obviously, there are very smart people working on it. Well, I got a smart guy right here. This is perfect. So I I have my own theories, and it comes down to a few key issues. One is demographics. The population of the country is growing very slowly, less than 1% a year, and the population is aging. I read somewhere that I believe age 47 is your peak spending year. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Age 47 is your peak spending year. Yes. So you're getting close to the peak of your earning power. Right. Your kids are in college. You have all the bills out there. Uh Uh-huh. Once you hit age 65, your spending falls by about 1% a year. Really? Even include if you put health care increases? Yeah. You paid off liabilities. You don't have your home mortgage anymore. All these things. You you slow down and don't do as much maybe because of physical issues. Mm -hmm. So- Obviously, everyone's different, but in bulk. But what that means is if the population is aging and the baby boomers are beginning to retire, they're going to incrementally spend a little bit less than they could before. They're on fixed incomes. Mm -hmm. They're not working anymore. And all that reduction in demand, and you see it. You see it in Japan, which has a much worse problem. They actually have a declining population and much older. They can't get inflation no matter what. The second piece of it is what I call the deflationary effects of technology. Uh, There are two parts. One, every single industry now is heavily influenced by technology. It's lowering costs. It's increasing productivity. And two, we now have products that for the first time in human history have infinite supply. So before I came up to New York, I went on my iPad and I bought a book, a Kindle book on Amazon. And if they sell a million more of those books, it's not going to cost them any more. They don't have to print the book and deliver it and all that. Mm-hmm. And we have more and more products out there that there's no supply constraint. And we've never had that uh, in history. So if people get a raise, they may be spending it on you know, renting a movie on Apple TV or getting another Kindle book or downloading a new song or buying a new video game or all these things that have effectively infinite supply. Well, given that environment that we're in this low inflation environment, I guess that the question would be, are the millennials going to come up and fill the gap? It's now the largest generation. Will they fill the gap or are there certain things that are constraining them, whether it's the overhang of student loan debt? or I don't even know. But is this a a weird interim period until they get going? Or do you think that this is a substantially different time that really is going to be lower inflation for the foreseeable future? I think the things to consider about the millennials is when they hit their peak earning power. Um, So that's probably at least a decade or more away. I think it's what they spend their money on. If they spend differently than their parents and grandparents and they're spending more on iPhone apps and things like that, that's not going to cause inflation. And then how many children do millennials decide to have? Mm. Because if the birth rate stays low, if you don't have more consumers, it's hard to get more inflation and more net demand. So I think watching the average age of first births How many children millennials have in a family? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Uh, And we've seen around the world, uh, it's very highly correlated, 
the more educated women are, the lower birth rates are because they go into the workforce and things like that. And we have a very highly educated millennial population for both sexes. So, and like you said, student loan debt, they grew up in the financial crisis and they have scars from that. So I think it's possible they save more money than maybe their parents did. Uh, I think they're going to be a little bit more hesitant about buying that first home, or maybe they don't reach quite as much for that home. You know, I've read articles and I know millennials, I think they're more focused on experience as opposed to things. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it, it, once you get that raise and the next raise and the right. next raise, then, well, I'll just buy this now or I'll just do right. that. Right. I was really psyched to, um, to use Zipcar or Uber, but now I live in the burbs and I need a car. So that could be a difference. So if we presume that low inflation is likely to continue, at least for the near-ish term, what does that do to a bond investor's outlook? What should we be looking for in our bond portfolios? I think that investing in bonds provides two, two main things. is stability, so to offset the fluctuations, what I'll call, of risk assets stocks or hedge funds or commodities or all these other things you can invest in. So it's your anchor. It's your sleep well at night money is what bonds are for. And secondly, they provide predictable cash flow. And that's why retirees like bonds so much. I know exactly how much I'm going to get every single year. And so I can budget accordingly. I think people make the mistake in this rate environment and have for you know, about a decade now of sometimes trying to reach for too much yield and talking about your 8% bond, and they really don't understand what they're getting into. High yield bonds can be a great investment, but you need to think of them very differently than your normal, you know, U.S. Treasury or high quality corporate bond or municipal bond. You have to think of them more like an equity-like investment as opposed to a bond-like investment. So if I'm looking at my bond investments and I have a little sliver of junk bonds and say, or high-yield bonds, uh, showing my age that I call them what they are, they are junk, what do you think is uh, an appropriate balance? If, if, if a total bond portfolio, let's just like play it out. We've got 40% in bonds and 60% in stocks or 70, let's do 70-30, a growth-ish kind of outlook. 30% in bonds. Of that bond portfolio, uh, for the 40-year-old who's saving for retirement, what percentage is do you think is a fair-ish percentage to have allocated into the high-yield stuff? Just so you get a little juice, but not bring your whole position down. I'm going to answer that question in two ways. Um, one, I would say on the municipal bond side, so if it's in a non tax-protected account like a 401k, I think the percentage should be a bit higher, maybe 20 or 25%. And the reason for that is the rate of defaults of even low-rated and below-investment-grade municipal bonds is far lower than corporate bonds. Oh, that's interesting. So to give some context, a triple B municipal bond has a lower default rate than a double A corporate bond. Okay. So that's if you're using municipal bonds, you should know, has a lower default rate. You can kind of push your risk a little bit more on the municipal side simply because there's a lower default rate, which means you're more likely to get your money back while you're collecting that extra coupon. Correct. Okay. Now, I'm in a tax-deferred account. I'm not going to use a muni. Um, now I'm looking at a plain old corporate junk fund. 
I I would put that at a, at a lower number, maybe 10%. And here's why. The correlation of high-yield corporate bonds to equities is very high. So if you have equity exposure already, in some ways you're, you're doubling up. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about in the beginning, every bond has a final maturity. So my potential return is capped out in a high-yield corporate bond, whereas if I get it right on the equity side, I theoretically have infinite upside. So I have lots of downside and some upside, or I can take the equity risk of lots of upside and lots of downside, but at least I still have lots of upside. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Justin Land in just a minute, but here it is. It's December, and you know what that means. It is big-time charitable giving moment and weeks and days ahead. You're going to be inundated with requests, and there is something that you need to know. There's a way to help yourself both tax-wise and heart-wise with your charitable giving. Our sponsor, Betterment, now lets its customers donate shares directly from their accounts to charities on their platform. It's an easy and tax-efficient way to give money. Betterment customers just indicate the amount and the charity, and they'll do the rest. They'll even show you the estimated tax savings from your donation. Go to Betterment.com to find out more about how you may be able to give to charities easily, quickly, and tax-efficiently. And now back to our interview with Justin Land. I want to ask a question about individual bonds versus bond mutual funds. I think that a lot of people feel like I don't have the wherewithal to do credit analysis or this kind of like deep dive that that you guys do. Is it okay to buy a bond fund? Pluses, minuses, funds versus individual bonds. I think for larger investors, and I'll say if you're going to allocate two hundred fifty to 500000 or more to bonds, then buying individual bonds can work because you can get enough diversification. If uh, you have less money than that or you're going into something like high yield and junk bonds, I think a fund or an ETF is a better way to go. You have more diversification. You have a bunch of credit analysts looking at everything. I think nowadays investing on your own and buying your own bonds is a, a dangerous proposition. One, because uh, somebody needs to do the credit work. And two, the transaction costs for trading bonds for an individual versus an institution, whether it's an asset manager, an insurance company, a mutual fund, are far lower. So you're already kind of in the hole just by the transaction costs. So in the municipal bond space, which is one of the more inefficient uh, spaces, the SEC did a study a number of years ago, and the average individual investor pays about a 2% markup Whoa, uh, to buy a bond. That's real. Whereas an institutional investor might buy, pay 0.1% to 0.5%. Hmm. And, and that's just buying volume. Right. You know, if I buy something from you every day, you're going to give me a better price than if you do it once a year. I think it's interesting because if you're a municipal bond specialist, as you are, or a bond specialist, you tend to have um, a lot of thoughts about where interest rates are going, and and I assume that plays into the way you make decisions. So what, what do you think is the path forward? Should the Fed be raising rates quicker than they are doing, given that 
there is this really low inflationary environment. The Fed's a tough one right now. The last 10 years have have basically blown up every economics textbook. Everyone 10 years ago said when they started quantitative easing, we're going to have runaway inflation and things like that. And we haven't. We've had the, the exact opposite. I can make the argument that maybe QE caused asset price inflation, stocks, real estate, commodities, all, all those things as opposed to of things we buy, mm-hmm. you know, a Coca-Cola or an Apple or, or, or whatever. And so that concerns me that now we are starting quantitative tightening. And does that mean the opposite thing happens? I, I don't know. No Come one on, knows. I want an answer. I, I, I am concerned that taking money out of the economy, which is already growing at a pace that no one's really thrilled about. Yeah, two and a half percent or whatever. That it could it could be a precursor to our next recession. And okay. I have no idea when we're going to have a recession. We will. Yes. Uh, I don't think it'll look like the financial crisis. It'll just be a normal recession. Please, God, I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> nor, nor, nor do I. <laughs> um, but as as one of the portfolio managers I work with, says, if our economy can't function on a 1% or 1.5% Fed funds rate, there's something really, really wrong. And the Fed wants to um, raise rates so that they have some powder dry when the next recession comes. Because if they kept them at zero, um, what do they do? But they are tightening de facto because they're unwinding the bond positions, right? So so that is tightening. That is tightening along with the the hiking environment. So we'll see what that means. Um, is that what you think is the biggest concern to you right now? If you look at the big macro picture, do you think the Fed is the most likely culprit in causing the next recession? I, I don't think so. I think people give um, the Fed, Congress, presidents a little too much credit for the economy, both good and bad. Right. Um, and markets. And, and markets. That's you have just in this country 350 million people making buying and selling decisions every day, whether they add more debt, whether they pay down debt, whether they're saving, whether they're spending. Um, new technologies are coming out all the time. New companies are being started. All of those are beyond the the influence of the market or, or Congress or the Fed. And in, in some cases, if I'm a business owner, and I can invest a dollar and make 30% on it, I'll borrow even if the interest rate's 10%. But if I can take a dollar and I only earn 0.5% on it, it doesn't matter how low rates are. I have no incentive to borrow or spend money. And I think that's what you've seen to some degree with a lot of these gigantic cash hoards at some of these companies, the Apples and Googles of the world, that... If they thought they could get a great rate of return, they'd do it. Right. Because that that, that is animal spirits, right? And that concerns me that Mm -hmm. if there were all these great opportunities out there, they would be spending the money. Right. And not spending the money on buying back their shares Mm -hmm. or – I mean, I guess that it's okay if they want to distribute dividends. That's fine. But the reality is if there is a reason to invest money, to make money, they're going to do it. In closing, uh, if I am looking at the bond portion of my 401k plan or my IRA that I'm just managing myself, I want to be prudent 
you know, markets are making new highs, Dow 23,000. Do you have some advice for how people should be looking at their bond positions? I fear that we're now long enough away from the financial crisis that people are saying, oh, those bond funds, they don't pay anything. I don't want them. Can you give people a really good reason to make sure they have bonds in their portfolio? Because bad things happen. I love that. Bad things do happen. I don't know when they're going to happen, and they happen. And, you know, the financial crisis was a great teacher in that if people had followed whatever their asset allocation was and whatever their rebalancing plan was and stuck to it, they would have been fine. It's that they said, well, now I'm going all to cash or now I'm going to change how I invest everything. And so even when the stock market's hitting new highs, stick to whatever plan you have and it will work in the long run because none of us can predict the peak in the stock market, the low in interest rates, rebalance according to your plan, even if interest rates are low and it's not exciting that you're only earning 1% or 2% on your bonds, stick to your plan because none of us can predict the future. Oh, what a good way to end. So before I let you go, uh, we started with your best financial decision, prepaying college through the Florida plan. What's your worst financial decision? Me trying to pick my own stocks. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I feel the same way. I was a trader and I hated that. That was just bad. I know a lot about bonds. I'm totally comfortable with bond investing, but I think I think like a bond person when I make equity investments and it doesn't go well for me. So I tend to just use ETFs and passive index funds. Justin Land, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, now it's time for one of our favorite things to do, and that is the listener question of the week. If you would like to get on the air live with us, you know, me and Mark, all you have to do is shoot us an email. Our address is askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. All right, now let's talk to Dee. She is on the line from New York City, the Big Apple. Hi, Dee. Welcome to the program. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Um, I am thinking about, when I turn 50 next year, about the catch-up for 401k. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, I do max out my 401k at work, and I do put in money to a traditional IRA. And since I don't, um, I don't get a deduction from that, I was thinking that maybe next year when I turn 50, I'll just do the catch-up in my 401k, and forget about putting money into the traditional IRA. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Uh, So you're 49 because you said you're going to turn 50 next year. Um, Kids, married, nothing. I'm single. Yeah, baby. Taking care of yourself. (laughs) Um, How much money is currently in your 401k? Uh, About 443,000. That's nice. Good for you. Traditional IRA, this is all non-deductible? Non-deductible. Okay. And how much is in there? 152000 Okay, great. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Tell me about other stuff that's going on in your financial life. What, else, what other savings and investing do you have you done? I do have a small, um, well, maybe not that small, Roth IRA, $75,000 in there. Okay. And I do have a um, taxable brokerage account with Betterment. And um, there I have about... 
250000 right now, and then I have a couple other um, taxable accounts, so the whole total turns out to be about 420000 Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, okay. I'm, a good, I'm a good saver. You're a darn good saver, lady. Uh, how much do you earn, Dee? Um, I earned approximately 144 a year. Okay, so that's why we can't deduct. And what's your game plan? Like, how long do you think you're going to work? How much money do you spend currently? Like, what are you, what are you thinking about right now? Well, um, I know for Social Security, my full retirement age would be 67, but honestly, I'm, I'm working towards retiring at 65. Okay. Um, right now, I spend about maybe 3000 3200 a month. Hold on. Um, Stand. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Forget about. Wait a second. I'm the reason. Like I'm, I'm writing things down. Mark's laughing because that is just not a lot of money to um, relative to how much you earn and the fact that you live in New York. Yes. So are you are you undershooting this? Are you not telling me about the extra thousand dollars that you use to eat awesome meals out of fabulous restaurants? I I mean, I I can spend more if I wanted to. (laughs) All right, but you spend. But right now, you're serious. You spend about thirty two hundred a month. Thirty two hundred a month. Those are my basics, and a little more. What would be like awesome? Like four grand a month or five grand a month? What's like the real number? Well, this is what I do. It's really funny because I do play little games with myself. Yes, we call that uh, mental accounting. Myself, uh-huh. I give myself a, like, $5,000 budget a month. Okay. And I always go under that. So whatever I didn't spend, I save. And from that 5000 1200 automatically glo- goes into my um, Betterment account. So that's kind of interesting because... Yeah. At the very, I mean, worst case, you're basically spending thirty eight hundred. Let's call it four thousand. Yeah, yeah. um, first of all, do you do you rent or do you own? I own a condo, and my mortgage and maintenance and taxes and all that stuff really comes out to only twelve hundred a month. Wait a minute, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> Mark and I are laughing because we you know twelve hundred. Did you buy it in nineteen sixty four? I mean, you were not. I mean, come on. Where is this? I I got really lucky that I found a one bedroom um, condo in Crown Heights ten years ago. Oh, right so that's before, before right? Uh-huh. It was right before the market. It was a new convert, like building went condos and converted. So mm-hmm. I paid uh, two thirty five for it. Oh um, my was, god! Yeah, that was before you know the market tanked. So of course my uh, original mortgage rate was six and a quarter. Mm-hmm. But then I refined this, so right now it's at four percent thirty year fix. And what's the and outstanding balance on it? One hundred forty seven thousand. Oh my God, this is such a great story. <laughs> By the way, everyone listening, Crown Heights used to be a little bit edgy, right? Yeah. And uh, and now my niece, like her first apartment coming out of college, she was in Crown Heights, and it was like hip. So you are hip, D. That now you 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 started edgy. Now you're hip. Um, so this is great, though. Four grand a month would be a fantastic number. Um, you are going to have no problem reaching your retirement goals at sixty-five. That's that is going to be just not even an issue. When you spend a little bit extra money, if you go on a trip, do you pull money out of the brokerage account, or do you have an emergency reserve no, or a slush fund? I have I have slush fund. I have like. 60000 that's like emergency, emergency that I really never touch. Mm-hmm. And then I have um, a separate 
fund that I put in the extra money that I don't spend anything else in order for for vacation. Okay, so you are so you're really taken care of. This is fantastic. I mean, because I'm just eyeballing this. I mean, you you've got four eight. Uh, you got over a million bucks, like one point one million right now. So you're yeah. in you're in fantastic shape. So next year, when you do turn fifty, is the question: Should you just put the money into the four hundred one k? Now you'll be able to do an extra six thousand instead of the non deductible IRA. I guess that's your Correct. big question. Tell me about yeah. what what the four hundred one k. Where is it held? Is it a good plan? Um, actually, it's a pretty decent plan. Yes. Where is it? Do you? Do it's you... a principal. And what are the investments inside of it? Well, I have mostly index funds. Okay. The non-deductible IRA, where is that held? Um, that is at Betterment right now. Okay. So I'm going to just guess because of fees involved with various retirement accounts because it's not just the cost of investment but the plan itself. I'm going to guess that it's cheaper actually for you to be in a non-deductible IRA with that money. So next year you'll be able to do instead of 5500 6500. You already have a bunch of money that is in IRA or deferred assets, 401k, you know, so you've got like right. 860. I would like keep doing the non-deductible and then maybe what I would also start to do is think about, you don't have to do it now because you're in a high tax bracket, but if you decide you're going to retire early, maybe you would even start to actually convert part of that money over. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's like that was a, my other question since I do have, you know, the traditional IRA and I was wondering. Yeah. You know I what I would wait to some of that. I, I think that I would wait to see what kind of tax deal gets cut. Because okay. that could actually have a real bearing on your situation. I kind of like that idea. I would like it if by, you know, over the next few years, you don't have to do it all at once, but that, you know, instead of having 150 in that traditional non-deductible and then 75 in the Roth, that it were all in the Roth because it's already been taxed. And then, you know, you keep doing what you're doing in terms of your 401k, you're, you're 18, that's fine. I like having some money that's already been taxed. Right. That's what I was thinking, like starting to move some of it to a, yep. a bucket that's, you know, I've already paid the taxes on, yeah. so I don't have to worry about exactly. it. Exactly. And, and the thing is that's really nice about that is it's not subject to minimum required distributions. So oh, okay. it mm-hmm. takes that the onus of that part out of it. So then you would have, you know, uh, like, again, in today's dollars, 225 that let's call it two-ish because you probably have to you're going to have to pay tax. So you have 200 grand that's already been taxed. Then you'll have another 420 in this taxable account. So you've got a bunch of money that's you already know what your tax liability is. And then you have the 401k, which is going to keep growing and you're going to keep contributing to it. And that will be available to you. It's just that you won't have to take all that money out at the same time. No minimum required distributions on the other money, just the 401k money. And I think you'll be that that's a good blended approach to your retirement. I bet you're not even going to have to work until you're 65. I'll bet you're going to have a choice. And that by that like, might be nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking that by 62-ish, you might say, hmm, I may choose to work, but I don't, I'm not going to have to work. That's my right, guess. You right. just, you've lived yeah. quite frugally. You've made an amazing purchase in real estate in one of the most expensive cities in the world. 
and you've done a really amazing job of saving. So mm. I commend you, Miss D. Let's, we need a bell in here of some sort to give <laughs> D the, I'm going to just give the applause. You've done a great job. So if thank there's any other so questions, you give us a holler back, but you're on the right track. Oh, thank you, Jill. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Take care. And uh, we will, I, I think we're going to hear from her again. I think we're going to get a, a D phone call saying, I'm 59. I think I want to be done tomorrow. <laughs> Good luck, D. Well, um, I definitely know who to reach out to when you, I do absolutely. that. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks again to Justin Land. He was the one who's conducting the Bond Boot Camp this week. I have a feeling we're going to have him back on the show. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.